Thanks, youth. I really appreciate when you guys are willing to, to lead worship for us. Uh, rest my soul. It's a very fitting song to begin our message here this morning, because uh, really what we're going to be talking about here uh, is the right resting place for our souls. And that's what we see as we are continuing here in our sermon series in the book of Romans. Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 29. There is some uh, difficulty in this text. It's not exactly straightforward. Um, I'm going to do the best that I can to help us understand what it means and try to apply it to our lives. Uh, but if you find yourself thoroughly confused at the end of this, that's okay. Uh, I'd love to have a personal conversation with you, field some questions even. Um, I'm always, always open for that. Let's go ahead and, and just read the text over here, and then we'll pray and seek the Spirit's help. Beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you, sh and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, come and help us in our lack of understanding, in our lack of willingness to allow the word to cut our hearts and to change us. I pray that you would remove that unwillingness to be changed and to hear and that we might come to your word with humility, seeking to allow it to 
move us. That Christ might be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. What are you resting in to make you righteous before God? Where are you resting your soul for your right relationship with God? Another way to ask this question is to put this scenario before you, which I'm sure you've heard before and maybe even used with others. If you were standing before the judgment seat of God and he looks at you and says, why should I let you into paradise? What would you say? See, the answer to that question in that moment is going to reveal where you are resting your soul for a righteous standing before God, for a right relationship before him. Where are you putting your confidence? And this, uh, this question rises to the front of our minds as we consider what Paul has to say in this passage You see, in chapter 2, Paul has been building his case against the Jew specifically or religious people in general, seeking to show them that their religion does not make them exempt from God's judgment. And as we come to our passage, we see Paul begin to deal specifically with Jewish resting places, places that the Jews were resting in for their right relationship before God. And what we see Paul really beginning to do here is to try to awaken the Jews by confronting their insufficient resting place. To awaken them to this confidence that they have in these different things that is not going to mean a lick on judgment day. He's seeking to awaken them to this reality. And so we're going to consider a couple of these resting places and then see where Paul says the right resting place is for our souls. So first, Paul confronts the Jews by showing how their rest in religious privilege has blinded them. We see this in verses 17 through 24. Let's reread 17 through 20. Listen to the way Paul rehearses the Jewish privilege here. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and approve his will and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, Paul begins this section by showing how many of the Jews boasted in the privileges that had been given to them by God. Now, these privileges were good things, but the Jews misused them. Consider some of the lists that Paul gives of the privileges that had been given to the Jews. First, he says, you call yourself a Jew. Being a Jew was a good thing. It meant that you were one of God's chosen people. This was a very good thing indeed. But the Jews boasted in this privilege, seeing themselves better than the rest of the world because they were God's chosen people, rather than allowing that to produce humility in them and compassion for others, they boasted in it and sought to elevate themselves above others. Taking a hostile mindset to those around them, specifically the Gentiles, 
we are better than you is the posture that they adopted because they were God's people. Paul continues, not only do you call yourself a Jew, but you rely on the law. Reliance upon the law was a good thing if one kept the law. But the Jews boasted not in their keeping of the law, which will be obvious in a moment, but in the mere possession of it. We've been given this gift of the law of God that makes us, that makes us better, that makes us more wise, more enlightened. We have more knowledge. We're smarter. Paul continues, you boast in God. Boasting in God can be a good thing. But the Jews boasting in God was self-glorifying, not God-glorifying. They boasted in the name of God to show that they were distinguished among all other peoples. They didn't say, come and see how glorious our God is. They said that God is our God and that makes us better than you. We have him and you don't. You know his will and approve what is excellent. Again, knowing God's will is a good thing. But the Jews use their knowledge of God's will to boast of their moral superiority over the Gentiles. And they sought to flaunt that every chance they got. We see Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the Jews of his day. We see the self-righteousness there. Old-time pastor Charles Simeon, uh, reading this quote here, talks about the Jewish mindset in relation to these privileges. He says, it was the external privilege that they gloried in and not the spiritual advantage derived from it. They were proud of the distinction, but not desirous of the spiritual benefits connected with it. Because of the superior knowledge they enjoyed, they despised all the rest of the world as blind and ignorant. And they assumed to themselves vainglorious titles such as guides of the blind, lights of those who are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, and teachers of children. You see, though the Jews had been given great privileges, good privileges by God, Instead of worshiping God, they sought to make themselves great in the eyes of men by boasting in what they had been given. This is the circumstance that Paul is confronting here in these religious people. You see, many of the Jews thought that because they possessed these things, they were good with God. They were righteous. You see, that's what Paul is seeking to do here. He's seeking to deconstruct that in the Jew. He's seeking to show them that just because you possess these things does not mean that you are exempt from the judgment of God. That's what he's seeking to show them here. He's seeking to undo these false resting places for a right relationship with God. And the Jews, very much so, were resting in their religion to make them right before God. Now, we see here Paul, as the text continues on, seek to awaken the Jews to this reality by going on to point out their inconsistency and hypocrisy. Paul, in a very clever way, seeks to draw in those proud Jews by rehearsing their privileges, 
which would have inflated their pride only to burst their egos by showing them their inconsistency. I think about it this way. Uh, you know how like, I love like, sitting back in a chair and kind of like trying to balance on the back legs? Does anybody else ever do that? Like you're in a meeting or something? Okay, cool. Some of you will enjoy this. Uh, I do that a lot. Um, this is what I see Paul doing, and this is what I see the circumstance being in the church at Rome. So they get this letter, and they come to this point in the letter, and somebody's reading it aloud, of course, as they did, and the Jews start hearing all of their privileges rehearsed, and they're just like, this is nice. I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to lean back a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip back in my chair and balance on the back legs, right? And that's what Paul wanted. He wanted them to deal with this pride that they had within them. And then what Paul goes on to do in the following verses is to come up behind them and kick the legs out from underneath the chair. It's really what he does here. After rehearsing all of this privilege that the Jews had, listen to what he says. Verse 21, an unexpected turn for sure. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And there they go. They hit the ground, right? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And because of this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because though you boast about being the people of God because of all this privilege you've been given, there's no reality within you to show that that is true. Notice the primary concern here that Paul has in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking it. The problem here is that the Jews believed the mere possession of the law made them right with God. But Paul shows that because they break the law, they too are unrighteous and worthy of God's judgment. The point that Paul is making here is this. Your religious privilege cannot save you. The fact that you were born into a Christian family cannot save you. The mere possession of the Bible or a knowledge of God or even a knowledge of Christ cannot save you. The fact that you go to a Christian school cannot save you. The fact that you are on the membership role at your church cannot save you. These are all insufficient resting places for a right relationship with God. And if you think for one second that when you stand before the judgment seat of God and he asks you why you should be allowed into paradise and you say any one of these things or so many others, he is going to look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Our religious privilege cannot save us. Now, how would you know if you were resting in religion to save you? 
Let's do a little self-analysis, right? How would we know if we were resting in religion to save us? Well, the way that Paul outlines what he says here, and also if we look at uh, the scriptures as a whole and the Jewish mindset, we actually see some characteristics of people who are resting in religion. The first is this. People who are resting in religion gauge their holiness by comparing themselves with morally inferior people or people they perceive to be morally inferior. So rather than comparing ourselves with God, the perfect standard, we look at Jimmy over here and think, man, he's not as spiritual as I am, so that means I'm cool with God. You know, John over here, he, he, only, he only reads his Bible three times a week. I read my Bible at least four. That makes me good, right? Or Sally over here, she, she goes to church maybe once a Sunday. Man, I go at least three times or once a, once a month. I go at least three times a month. For sure, when there's five Sundays in a month, I go three times. We gauge our own holiness on the people sitting to the right and to the left of us rather than on God. Secondly, people who are resting in religion condemn and have a judgmental attitude towards those who they perceive to be less moral than they are. So not only are we comparing ourselves with those people we think are less moral than us, we then adopt a condemnational attitude towards them. It's not our right to condemn. You guys know that, right? We don't hold that power. But we think that we do. Thirdly, people who are resting in religion lack a self-awareness of their own sinfulness. Why? Because they're constantly comparing themselves with people who they perceive to be morally inferior to them. So they never see their own sin because they're never comparing themselves to a standard that is higher than themselves. We see all of these characteristics in the Jews who Paul was rebuking. Every single one of them. Because the Jews rested in their religious privilege, they gauged their holiness, not comparing themselves with God, but with the Gentiles who were around them. This led them to have a judgmental, condemnational attitude towards the Gentiles, which is very obvious in the Gospels, and also to a lack of self-awareness of their own self-righteousness, which is why Paul had to write this in the first place, because they thought they were good with God, because of the mere possession of these privileges. See, Paul is showing us that religious privilege is an insufficient resting place for our souls. Although it makes us look spiritual to the world around us, God sees beneath our moral boasting. He sees beneath it. So Paul here has deconstructed the resting place of religious privilege for the Jew by showing them their inconsistency and their hypocrisy. And having removed Jewish privilege as an acceptable resting place for a right relationship with God, Paul now aims to do the same thing with the most important Jewish ritual. Let's look at verse 25. For circumcision 
indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, why does Paul turn his attention to this rite of circumcision? For the Jew, circumcision was the most important ritual in defining whether you were in a right relationship with God or not. It goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham. And it was to distinguish Jews from every other people group. This physical rite of circumcision goes all the way back to the beginning, right? When God called the first Jew, Abraham. What the Jews who Paul is referencing here believed is that because they were circumcised, they were right with God. If they thought that their religious privilege made them right with God, how much more would they be resting in circumcision, which gave them all of those privileges, right? Circumcision is the initiation ritual into a relationship with God for the Jew. Why wouldn't they rest in it, right? They were placing their confidence in a right relationship with God on this ritual. Now, that sounds pretty ridiculous to a lot of us, I think. You're serious? Like the Jews actually believed because they were physically circumcised that they were right with God. That sounds a little bit foolish, doesn't it? But if we're honest, we're not that different from these Jews. We have our own initiation rituals into Christianity that we often rest our confidence in to make us right before God. Now I'm assuming that most, if not everyone here, has heard somebody say or perhaps has said themselves in evangelizing or maybe you've heard a a preacher or maybe you were at a retreat or you were at a conference or something and you heard somebody say something like this. If you want Jesus... Pray this prayer with me. You will be a Christian. If you want Jesus, you simply have to ask him into your heart. Raise, with every eye closed, those of you who want Jesus, raise your hand. Come up to the front. Write write your name on the back of this card. Check this box. You need to be baptized. You're a Christian. You're a Christian now. Brothers and sisters, the enunciation of a prayer, the raising of a hand, the checking of a box on the back of a card, being dunked in a baptismal can no more save us than circumcision can save the Jew. These are external rituals that are meant to be a sign of what has happened to an individual inwardly. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you pray this prayer, you will be saved. Or if you raise your hand, you will be saved. Or if you come up at an altar call, you will be saved. 
Now there's a little bit of difficulty here because true and genuine conversion can simultaneously happen at a moment where you pray a prayer or at a moment when you raise a hand or at a moment when you come to an altar call. The difficulty is true and genuine conversion also cannot happen at that moment. And then what happens? Well, we're told that because we've done this, we are a Christian and that we are saved. And so we go on living a good, religious, moral life when we truly don't have the inward reality. Really not saved. And we're not saved because we're not resting our souls in Jesus, but in our decision to participate in one of these rituals. And yet we think just like the Jews did that we're good with God. And we're not that far off. These rituals, just like circumcision, are insufficient resting places for our confidence before God. And if that's our answer on Judgment Day, don't expect a warm welcome from God. So this is why Paul directs his attention to circumcision. So let's go back to verse 25 and see what Paul is arguing here. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So Paul's point here is that a relationship with God is not defined by external rituals, but by obedience to his law. In other words, if you don't obey the law, don't expect your circumcision to be of any help to you on judgment day. Don't expect a prayer that you prayed to be of any help to you on Judgment Day or getting baptized or any of these other external rituals. Now, for the Jew, the thought that physical circumcision was not necessary to be right with God was unthinkable. This is why there's so much difficulty in assimilating the Gentiles into the Christian church with Jewish converts in the first century. We see that dialogue go down between the apostles and Acts primarily over circumcision. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be right with God? This is why the book of Galatians was written, because there were people in the church teaching that, yes, you need faith in Jesus to be right with God, but not only faith in Jesus, you need circumcision also, right? We see the tension there in the early church. For the Jew, it was unthinkable, so much so that they said, Gentiles, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be right with God. But this is exactly the point that Paul goes on to make in 26 and 27, that physical circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So look at the argument here, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now what's Paul doing here? I believe that Paul is using 
uncircumcised Gentile believers as an example to the Jews of people who have been made right with God by their faith in Jesus Christ, i.e. their obedience to the law through faith, apart from physical circumcision. You want to see that this is a reality, that somebody could be made right with God apart from physical circumcision? And by obedience to the law through faith in Jesus, look at the Gentiles sitting to the right and to the left of you. This is what Paul is communicating to the church. He is boldly proclaiming that circumcision is not required for salvation. Seeking to awaken the Jews to their mistrust in it. Now not only does Paul say that it is possible for the uncircumcised to be reconciled to God without physical circumcision. But he also rebukes the Jews by saying that one day those who are physically uncircumcised but have kept the law through faith will condemn you who are circumcised but break the law. On judgment day, think about this for the Jew. On judgment day, uncircumcised Gentiles will condemn you for your mistrust in the rite of circumcision. How offensive would that have been to the Jew? Paul is seeking to lovingly awaken them to the insufficient resting place, right? So let me try and simplify the argument here so you can see what Paul is doing if it's not clear yet. So the Jews are resting in their physical circumcision to shield them from God's judgment. Paul is seeking to remove this ritual as a resting place for Jewish confidence before God by doing the following three things. Showing that only obedience to the law shields anyone from God's judgment. Verse 25. Showing that those who are physically uncircumcised by faith have kept the law and have been reconciled to God. Verse 26. Those who believe Gentiles, or those believing Gentiles, will one day condemn you Jews because of your mistrust and physical circumcision. Verse 27. Therefore, abandon circumcision. Abandon it as a resting place for your soul. Abandon these external rituals. To make you right before God. Paul here has done the work of deconstructing the insufficient Jewish resting places of religious privilege and their sacred initiation rite of circumcision. Now, lastly, Paul shows those resting in religion where the right resting place is for their souls, where their confidence should be before God. We see this in verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul uses a contrast here in these last two verses between what is outward and physical and between what is inward and spiritual 
to show us where the right resting place is for our souls. The Jewish rite of circumcision was outward and physical, done with human hands. God, when he brought the covenant to Abraham, said, Abraham, circumcise yourself. And not only that, you must circumcise every one of your male children on the eighth day after they are born. So from the earliest point on, the Jew understood that circumcision was an intimate part of their relationship with God. But what God intended to communicate is that it was merely to be a sign of what happened inwardly within them. It was meant to point to a spiritual reality, and that's what Paul is showing us here. This rite of circumcision was done with human hands, outwardly, physically. But Paul says that if you wish to be made right with God, there must be an inner spiritual circumcision of the heart that takes place. And whose work is it to do this circumcision of the heart? Brothers and sisters, it is not a work that you do. Paul says that it's a work that the Spirit of God does within us. Paul is showing us here the essence of man-made religion and the gospel. Man-made religion says you must work to be right before God. The gospel says that to be right before God, he must work in you and you must rest in him. That's what the gospel says. The spirit of God must change you inwardly and you must rest in that. Augustine, the early church father, in his confessions, understood this gospel reality. In the beginning of his confessions, he says, speaking to God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they rest in you. That's the essence of the gospel, resting in what God has done, not in what we have done or do. Brothers and sisters, the irony of resting in religion is that no person who rests in religion ever truly rests. There's always more sin and more need to do in order to feel like you're right with God. Is this the way that you're living your life? Is this the way that you're living out your Christianity? On a system of doing in order to make yourself feel better about your sin. Resting and trusting in an initiation ritual that didn't save you. I don't know what you're resting in this morning to make you right before God. I I don't know what answer every single person here would give to that question that God may perhaps ask us on judgment day. But I hope that you have seen that there are many religious resting places that appear to be Christian, but that are insufficient in God's eyes. 
And if this morning you have come to see that you are resting in religion to make you right before God, I would plead with you to hear the call of Christ to you this morning. This is what he has said and spoken to every person resting in religion to make them right before God. He says, come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, and if indeed He does ask us this question, why should I let you into paradise? Brothers and sisters, the only appropriate answer to that question is Jesus. That's it. Hear his call to you today. Come to him. Father, thank you for being not only concerned with the eternal destiny of the Gentile, but also with the religious. Thank you for being concerned enough to put this passage in your word to awaken us, graciously awaken us to our misplaced trust. May your spirit probe our hearts today May we settle once and for all what our answer would be to that question. And would you work powerfully within us to deliver us from our own confidence in ourselves and shift that to confidence in Christ by the inner work of circumcision in our hearts. That we might not walk as the religious, moral person walks doing to feel right before you but that we might walk resting in what you have done in us. That Christ may be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.